Thank you very much, and thank you for all who have braved the cold, dark weather to come out and to hear God's Word and to be encouraged this first Sunday of the new year at everything that He may have, hopefully, in store for us. These psalms we're doing over the next five weeks are called the Psalms of Ascent, or the Gradual Psalms. And they're a collection of songs in the Hebrew book of Psalms that pilgrims to Jerusalem would have sang on their way there and then on arrival. And they're a really carefully arranged collection of songs from God's hymn book. Even as long ago as AD 30 to 50, just shortly after the Lord walked on the earth, um, a, a transcription was made of um, psalms into a scroll that was discovered um, a number of years ago called the Great Psalm Scroll at the Qumran community. Now, this psalm scroll, it's kind of like the message uh, version of the psalms because there was lots of other material and writings uh, in with the Hebrew psalms. Their order was all messed up. But what was fascinating is that these 15 psalms were in exactly the same order, in exactly the same way, with exactly the same titles and ascriptions to David and Solomon as what we find today. Clearly, people realized these psalms were ordered in a certain way to tell a story. Now, whenever you take one of our hymn books, they're arranged alphabetically, so if you know what the song is you're looking for, you can get to it. But if you were using an older hymn book, uh, which I, of course, forgot to bring out tonight, um, you could look through and see songs and hymns that were arranged by themes thematically. So whether it was Thanksgiving or Confession or Christ's birth or Christ's second coming, you could see all the collection of hymns around that. And it's like this with this book for these pilgrim people traveling up to Jerusalem. And why were they traveling to Jerusalem? Well, every Israelite, if they were able, three times a year was commanded to come from their hometown and village to worship God in Jerusalem at three feasts. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Four of these psalms are, are by King David, and the central psalm, 127, is of Solomon. And these two kings were really closely associated with, with building up Jerusalem and preparing this, this mighty temple that was uh, basically a wonder of the ancient world. So why are we spending all this time in these psalms? Well, our ministry theme for the next two years is how we grow, develop, and mature on our journey as Christians. And of course, as these psalms are pilgrim psalms, they fit totally in with that theme. These songs, they're not the songs of the comfortable and the contemplative, but the songs of the dynamic and distressed. Pilgrims who are moving through dangerous areas, yet all of them are hopeful, trusting, optimistic, and centered on the Lord. So what we've done is we've given maybe two psalms each time. They're partnered together with a psalm of David or a psalm of Solomon so that you can get a sense of the whole of this little collection. And it's the ministry committee's hope that in these psalms we see that the journey of the Christian life isn't like an inconvenient obstacle to getting to heaven or getting to the good stuff, but it's part of the, the, the way God teaches us his curriculum to help bring hope and, and actual stability in him whenever it seems hopeless and unstable in the times in which we live. So let's bounce into the text and read Psalm 121 and 122 together. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So imagine a pilgrim's journey from a small village to far away Jerusalem. And as the pilgrim had approached Jerusalem, so the path went up to this elevated height on which the city was set, he would have seen the rolling Judean hills, very attractively described in the Tel Aviv travel brochure. But the reality was these hills held many potential dangers. There were bandits, landslides, roaming wild animals, not to mention some superstitions the nations round about had about mountain gods and the like. The pilgrim and his journey, going through this long, maybe days or weeks journey to get to Jerusalem, was probably tempted to yield to the kind of intellectual and emotional pull to trust and to fear what they could see, what was close to them. But yet in the psalm, this pilgrim lifts his eyes higher than the hills to the throne of God, the maker of heaven and earth and every hill that his eye could see. And his heart followed the spiritual pull to what was greatest, but yet invisible, and that was the most high God, the Lord. Now, because of the rocky terrain that he was traveling, either it had been alternately blasted with heat or sodden with rain, depending on which the festival he was attending and what the season was, he knew that he was going to slip, trip, and fall. That was to be expected. But he had confidence that he wasn't going to get any sprained spiritual ankles in the way because the God that he came to worship wasn't on holiday or taking a nap. This God was ever vigilant. He was awake. And so this pilgrim can say to his traveling companions and to his own soul, he's not going to let my foot be moved. As he goes on, day and night passes, he seeks rest and relief wherever it can be found, in towns, villages, maybe in the open countryside. I don't know if you've ever been interrelating around Europe, but uh, I think uh, from those experiences that people have done that, you basically find a bed wherever it's comfortable and safe. And perhaps it was the same for this pilgrim and the journey of the people he was with. But actually going through this experience teaches and reminds him that whatever all these changing scenes of life, day and night, the Lord can be trusted. And certainly those of you who have flown with budget airlines, you can attest to that boost in faith and trust that some of these travel experiences can bring. Because getting to Jerusalem is not always guaranteed. You remember our Lord told a parable of a man who was going down to Jericho who fell in amongst robbers and was basically left half dead. But this psalmist actually feels that the Lord is walking right beside him. It's like he's this shade, this parasol, this protection. 
um, against the, the smiting sun, against the moon, anything from the night or the day that would harm him, the Lord is there as a protection. And the Lord is there at his right hand. And I'm sorry for you left-handed folk, but uh, we live in a kind of very um, dexterous, very right-centric uh, universe. But the right hand was a symbol of your work, your authority, your greeting, your religion, uh, the, the things that you do, whatever your right hand finds to do, do it with all your might, the scripture says. So the Lord is there right beside you, whatever you do. And the Lord could keep him from every harm and evil, keeping his life or even his soul. Didn't our Lord Jesus teach us to pray this very thing, Lord, deliver us from evil? And it's important to realize is that when we speak about this psalm and these psalms, these weeks, these are promises for the people of God. These are promises for Christians who know God as their Father, who can sincerely say, pray, our Father who art in heaven. These psalms are not meant to encourage you in a general religious sense that, you know, God is our keeper, everything will be okay. But in a very specific and important way that if you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Christ, and if you're trusting your life to him, this is available to you day and night. But we have to go through this experience as Christians. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. It was almost that God was beside them. But they didn't have the experience or the wisdom to know that this sinister presence of the serpent should have been driven out and ignored. And they listened to something other than God. And their failure meant they forfeited the protection and freedom that listening to and ordering their lives around God's words could have given them. And in this psalm, I think the Lord begins to sort of show us, well, look, you're coming on a journey with me. I'm not going to wave a magic wand and everything's okay. You've got to learn to trust me and to feel day or night in the countryside, whenever you're in danger or whenever you're blessed, that I am your protection, that I am there with you, that I I'm your keeper. So how does, how does the Lord keep, and how often does the Lord keep this psalmist? Well, six times in the psalm, this word keep or keeper comes up, and it's concentrated at the very end of the psalm. So let's look at this last verse. The Lord will keep your going out and coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What does going out and coming in mean? Hebrew poetry can be pretty difficult. But actually, this is one of the times where the geography and cultural differences and time differences actually are, are not a big thing because we're all very familiar with the fact if we go out somewhere, we have to go through a door, we come back in, we, we come in. It's a, a symbol or a metaphor for everyday life, for all of the daily stuff of life that we have to do, whether we're going out to work or study, to enjoy ourselves, to socialize, if we're not housebound, we go through doors. And the Bible uses this figure of speech for people who are working in fields, for people who are going in military campaigns, for the people who do the work of royalty and kings. God is really interested, no matter how good or small you think you are, in what you do with your day, in the detail of your actual life. Not to punish you, but that he can teach you what he is like and teach you to depend on him. Now, as many of you know, there can be as many dangers at times inside the home as outside for those who've experienced domestic abuse. 
But no matter where a person is, no matter where a Christian is, the Lord is not unaware of their predicament. And he keeps his children. He protects them. And he guides them. You know, it's interesting when we pull back from our own situation and think about, well, what is all this about? What is the Lord doing? Well, one of the greatest events in the Bible was when God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And Joshua, who was the successor to Moses, he talked about how they came out of Egypt and went in to the promised land. They came out of slavery and they came into a new life full of potential, full of promise, and full of hard work they needed to do. But what's really important about this little phrase that we just read over in a few seconds, where he says that at 85, his strength hadn't diminished, not because he was something special, but because he had trusted in the Lord and he had done the task the Lord had commanded him. What's really important for Joshua is the fact that there were 40 years of wanderings in the desert, failures, mess-ups from God's people, rebellion, sickness, apathy, boredom, a really uninspiring diet of manna and quail, two dramatic crossings of bodies of water, and lots and lots of other stuff. Can you see how going out and coming in for Joshua encompassed all of those things, all of those really messy stuff that you read about in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you think, why are God's people making so many mistakes? And yet, despite that, the Lord was keeping them, and he was faithful to his promise. Because the Lord doesn't keep us from difficulty. He keeps us in and through those problems. As Jim reminded us this morning, being a Christian doesn't mean that you're locked away in some spiritual high-security vault, um, couch you know, wrapped up in uh, cotton wool, but you're out there, you're exposed to everything life is going to throw at you. But if you're a Christian, you can know that no matter what job, no matter what home situation, no matter what health problem you are going into, God is your keeper. And he is no more present with you than if you were wrapped up in a vault. He is present with you all the time. It's not a promise that things will be easy, but in the end for the Christian, all is going to be okay with our souls and our persons. And it's wonderful when thinking about this. Um, I would urge you to think about some of these straightforward truths of the Bible. Because when I have done so, I have found my, my heart greatly encouraged and situations have changed as well as my view of them. It's not because it's magic or it's positive thinking. It's because I simply sometimes just take that step of faith and trust the Lord. And he is faithful to what he has said in his word he will do. We have this picture so much more clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? Who went out and came in with his people. He is the good shepherd who brings all his sheep out and then he goes before them. He leads them. And then when they've found pasture and done whatever they need to, he brings them back into the sheepfold and he's the last in. In fact, probably he's sleeping at the door. He is the door of the sheep. He is the gate. The wee sheep can't jump out and get savaged by some wild animal but nor can a wild animal or a thief come in and do a bit of sheep stealing because he is at the gate. He is the only way that you get in or out and he is protecting them from themselves and from external threats. The Lord Jesus Christ goes out 
and comes in and everything else in between, he is there. The Lord Jesus does not ask us to do anything in our lives that he himself has not already done and is not already doing. And he asks us in our Monday to Sunday, going out and coming in and our living, to trust him because he is the first out and last in as he guides us. Now, before we leave this psalm and go on to the next one, just look at the way the author uses one of those poetic devices. Now, I know he didn't come out to have a lecture in poetry on a Sunday night, uh, really cold in January, but you'll understand why this is important. And this little device called merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, merism. And what it simply means is when a poet takes two contrasting things and he uses that to sort of say, look, you've got this and this, but I also mean everything else in between. So have a look at the text. Where do you see it? Well, you've got God who creates the heavens and the earth and everything else in between. You've got the sun by day and the moon by night and any other time that can happen. God keeps us from evil, but keeps our life. So evil that would threaten to destroy us and take away our life and separate us from everything that's good and our soul that God has given us and breathed into us, everything ends in between God is in charge of and then are going out and coming in. Whatever we're doing, the Lord is in charge. So not only what the psalmist is actually writing and saying, but even how he says it, wraps up in the whole of our existence and the experience of the believer, no matter when or where you are, wraps it up in the Lord and his keeping hand. When I think of this, I'm constantly fascinated in my life by, by two things. First of all, I just can't seem to do the whole on-time thing, as any of you who know me uh, will testify. But secondly, the thing that fascinates me is that whenever I do get myself into a mess and I pray that the traffic lights remain green or that the security queue at the airport on the 12th of July moves a lot more quickly than I thought it might, that I get the plane, the Lord often honors that, often despite me. It's only just to be late or disorganized. But some of these things that happen in our lives are meant to help us rely on the Lord, that the small things the simple things that we commit to the Lord and that we settle our hearts with. And as you do that, it maybe starts to become a little bit easier, a little less hard whenever we're confronted with all those irrational fears. You know, when I was uh, enjoying uh, dependent living at home in the family home, I was blissfully unconcerned about fire and flood hazards because there was always somebody at home. And in my bedroom, there was some sort of Tower of Babel style uh, extension leads upon extension leads upon extension leads, powering printers and screens and computers and lamps and digital pianos and scanners and shredders and dear knows what else. Never burst into flames. It probably should have done by the laws of physics. But yet, now as I'm a bit older, a bit more experienced living on my own, some of these things do begin to settle at the back of your mind and go, oh yeah, even though the chances are probably less and you're more vigilant, yet sometimes these little things can preoccupy us. And this is an example for me. Am I trusting in the Lord or am I trusting in what is visible? Am I trusting in the fact that I'll go around and switch things off and leave the house for a few days? Is that beginning to rule my peace, rule my heart? Or is it the fact that, no, I can trust all these things into the Lord's hands? And I know then that when the big stuff happens in our lives, when I look back, I can see how the Lord has kept me and prepared me a weak faith to deal with, for example, the loss of two parents. I wasn't kept from the bad stuff, but I was very much kept through it, through the prayers and actions of God's people 
and through the stuff that had been built into me through attending, you know, Sunday nights in January whenever people wanted to go home and stay at home, but actually it was good they came out here to learn about the Lord. Those were the types of things that helped me to trust, um, as did Psalm 130 that I think Stephen Shaw will be doing in a few weeks' time, out of the depths, O Lord, have I cried unto you. And so if you come across a favorite psalm or two from the next few weeks, why don't you try and memorize it yourself? Really get it into your consciousness, into your mind. Spend a little bit of time every day. Read it through 10, 20 times. They're really short. You can read the whole section in maybe 15, 20 minutes if you're an average speed, uh, average uh, reading speed. But try and get some of these psalms really into your heart because they will come back to you at times of great need and also in times of celebration and hope. Because if Psalm 121 paints the Lord as our personal keeper, Psalm 122 shows him as the keeper of all God's people together. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You know, wonderful energy and anticipation in these opening lines. The grandeur and transcendence uh, is well captured by Hubert Parry's choral setting. I was glad of this psalm. You maybe have heard it if you were uh, watching the coronation of King Charles III. And this pilgrim anticipates the excitement of actually standing in God's own city, Jerusalem, where all the tribes have come up to worship God. And he sees in the way that it has been organized something of, of what the Lord values. Because Jerusalem has been built not like some sort of, you know, Olympic village where you've got some port and, you know, the infrastructures had to be rapidly put up to accompany a huge influx of people. You have a city that has been built and, and, and compacted together or bound firmly together. It's the same word and idea that's used in the construction of this tabernacle that we read about in Exodus where, where God was dwelling with his people in a tent and how the whole thing was coupled together so that it became one whole, even though lots of, you know, gold and threads and religious furniture and that, it formed one whole because it was bound together. And one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian church is how this simple message of a crucified man can bring together people across time and nations and cultures together so that we can have people from Belfast and Beijing and Bogota and wherever else beginning with B there is in the world, worshiping the same Lord, experiencing the same truths and having the same assurance of eternal life. It's not because it's a nice social movement or it kind of works, it's because the Lord has actually bound his people together. And you know, you can try doing this yourself and it will fail. We read earlier in the book of Genesis how when people tried to sort of, you know, live the good life, I want to live in a city. I, we, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to build a tower that reaches the top of the heavens so that we're united and that we're not scattered. But the builders of this, this tower, uh, Babel, whether it was a, a religious structure or else it was basically, if you uh, don't mind the analogy, sort of putting a finger up to God saying, we can live without you. We can do things on our own terms. Whatever it was, they left God out of the picture. And because of their own hubris, and pride, they actually got the very thing they feared. They were scattered, their languages were confused. Whenever you forget the Lord, life begins to fall apart bit by bit, and it can be really hard to see how do these, all these pieces fit back together again? The sin patterns we see in our hearts, lack of gratitude, worshiping creation around the creator, 
forgetting to be kind, forgetting to obey authority, all these things, life begins to unravel. And you can see that on our news today. You can see so much social decay, so much falling apart because people are out for themselves. But let's get back to our psalm. There's real, you know, ah, let, let's do this. Let's go up and worship God. And I think to myself, when was the last time that was my experience of, of coming to the presence, of coming to church? When was it the last time that you attended church for worshiping God and to, to give thanks to Him? That's what happens in the psalm. They go to, to give thanks to God. When was the last time you actually did that as your, your primary motivation? If we're honest, we come because it's habit. We're speaking. Um, you know, we need to put an appearance or we want to sing some music or hear God's word or even, you know, remember the Lord and the breaking of bread. These things are really important and, and they are good enough reasons to attend church. But how many times did you actually go to worship the Lord as a person, as God himself, as, as somebody that you could almost imagine is actually beside you each day, who is real, who isn't a religious fiction or isn't wishful thinking or a, an idea or a metaphor, but is an actual person who walked on this earth to worship him. Has that ever been your experience? Because, you know, sometimes the music's going to be naff, the sermon's dull, fellowship a bit uninspiring, um, opportunities for service a bit limited, you get a bit bored, people aren't meeting your expectations. This is going to happen in any group of humans. But we'll, what will never be a waste of time or you'll never lose out on is coming to worship God and to give Him thanks, to lift your eyes from your immediate surroundings up to Him and to be encouraged and strengthened by Him. So how does your view of public worship fit in with the enthusiasm and the priorities seen in this psalm of David? We read on the psalm, we'll have then thrones were set for, for judgment. Okay, well, that was all nice, but why are we talking about administration and, and governance? Um, you know, it all seems a wee bit uninspiring. Well, it is a bit uninspiring until you realize that Jerusalem and Israel didn't have the robust social security system that, that we have. And as many Israelites were, if you found yourselves at the wrong end of the power gradient, if you found yourselves oppressed, if you found yourself poor or a widow and orphan, often your only recourse was to the center of administration, the center of law, the center of the temple. You remember, for example, how Solomon tackled the case of two women and one dead and one living baby. Uh, whose maternal parentage was in doubt, they had to come to the king. A later governor of Israel, Nehemiah, actually had to tell in the public square the rich to stop oppressing the poor, to stop exacting in interest. And Paul asked the Corinthians, is there not one competent person among you to arbitrate and judge disputes? As a Christian, Paul says, we're in some way going to be judging angels. Are you not fit to actually sort things out yourself. So in all these pictures, God knows that human sin places a need to put boundaries and wisdom, to exercise justice and good administration so that we can all enjoy peace. And sometimes the things that, you know, when God says to us no in prayer, or maybe takes away some of the things that we've been relying on that aren't Him, well, sometimes that's actually for our good, even though it can be very painful at times. 
You'll remember in the Garden of Eden how Adam and Eve were kicked out and prevented re-entry. And that was primarily to protect them because they could not live as sinful people going their own way in the presence of a holy God. So the New Testament reminds us that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order who wants his people to show what, what he is like, the things that he values, the justice and the righteousness that is important to him. Now the psalm ends then with, with three calls for peace in Jerusalem. We are to pray for it. There's a blessing of peace pronounced. And then the psalm directly states the author's intent in saying, peace be within you for the sake of his fellow Israelites and God's house. We can't leave this psalm without thinking of what is happening right now, tonight where Jerusalem, the state of Israel and the surrounding nations and people groups are most definitely not in a state of peace. The Jews were given many blessings and advantages by God. Paul outlines these in the letters to the Romans, that God's law, that God's covenant, his promise, the patriarchs came from them, and of course our Lord Jesus, who was a faithful, observant Jew, came from Israel. But now salvation, Paul says, is found only in this man, not going to the temple or going to Jerusalem or doing religious feasts, but faith in Christ. In turning away from our sins and the insatiable desires we have to govern ourselves, to love ourselves, and to serve ourselves. But yet, even though God has opened things up to us Gentiles, he hasn't forgotten about the people of Israel, the people that he loved so dearly. He hasn't finally rejected them. And Paul talks about in Romans 11 how God, out of his own grace and faithfulness, is going to someday in some way effect a national conversion of the Jewish people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this will be the riches of the world. It'll be like life from the dead. We don't know what it'll be like. And again, Christians will argue over details. But I think it's quite clear from Scripture how God, out of his own grace, will have the Jewish people as a nation group converted to believing in Christ. So we're therefore not to be arrogant, never to think in this psalm or any other psalms when we see the failures of Israel to think that we're above that as Christians. We are like wild branches that have been grafted onto this, this tree of the whole Jewish religion and life and culture. All the things that God has done, we have the privilege of being grafted onto that. And we are to learn as Israel did in their pilgrimages, in their journey with the Lord, how we can keep or how we can break faith with God. Now, so I say, none of this gives us any biblical warrant or justification to support any you know, political or social or military action of the state of Israel. But it does give us pause to think about, Lord, let's pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. Let's pray for their protection, and let's pray for the protection of those around them, those who are vulnerable, not forgetting the women, children, the elderly, those who are sick, and the not inconsiderable Palestinian Christians who are suffering at this time. Let us pray that Christ would come and bring his peace. There's a wonderful irony in Scripture um, that I was thinking about as I read the end of the psalm where it says we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We are to pray because in that is our security. Peace be within your walls. I will seek your good. 
The other time, God's people are commanded to pray for the good of the city and to work for their good is actually in the heart of enemy territory. When there came a time a few hundred years later, whenever Israel had slipped away from worshiping God, that Jerusalem was destroyed, it was sacked, it was flattened, the temple was completely dismantled, all the treasures taken out of it, and people were deported to the ruling empire of Babylon. And yet, the prophet Jeremiah said, pray for the peace of Babylon, pray that it will prosper, because in its prosperity will be your prosperity. And I think we don't know what the future is. There are many changes in society, and you may, as a young Christian, be worried about, well, should I take this course of study? Should I go into that job? Should I pursue that relationship? Should we have children now? Should I take this opportunity to do this type of work? And you think, oh, well, actually, maybe it's not a very nice place for Christians. Don't worry about that. The Lord has a, a rather nice habit sometimes of changing things very dramatically, changing the landscape of um, what Christians can worry about. So whatever your job is, whatever you want to pursue, as long as it's not immoral, illegal, or against Scripture, pursue that. Don't be scared of what will come in the future because the Lord is your keeper. And in praying for peace, what you're actually praying for is not a nice city like Jerusalem. You're praying for what is inside, what is of most value in that city because it was God's dwelling place, God's house. It was the dwelling place of God that Jerusalem held. Now, at the time, this was like a wooden box, uh, and then it was in a big temple that King Solomon would build. But we reminded ourselves a couple of weeks ago that Christmas is the message of Emmanuel, God with us. We see clearly as Christians that Jesus Christ, he pours into all of these Old Testament analogies and merisms and pictures and everything what is actually real and more substantial than anything we could have done. He is the one who completes and fleshes out these two Psalms. He is God with us, the true temple. And as man, he dwells with men and women. He lives in the middle of us, spiritually united people all across the world, and he gives us gladness and peace. He administers justice and rule, and he fights on our behalf against any threats that come from outside. Christ is the Lord, our helper. Do you remember how he invited people who were burdened down with you know, traditional religious structures and oppressed by religion and politics on either side? He says, come to me and take my yoke. Learn of me, because my burden is light. And it's almost that Christ is at our right hands like this lo the Lord, and he is walking with us, the creator of the universe. And not only is he doing that, he's also, as we learned this morning, praying on our behalf, morning, noon, and night, interceding for us, as Jim reminded us. He's not sleeping. He's not on a holiday. He's not like Christ's disciples who nodded off at the most spiritually intense time of his life. He is praying for us even now. Christ is our keeper. He crushed the great evil, set himself against God's people, Satan himself, and he's released life to us. We learned this morning that we can pray in the victory of God. So too can we sing in the victory of God, of Christ our captain, who will be with us and keep us forever. And this is the theme of our final hymn that will invite the band to come up and play, O church arise and put your armor on. We follow Christ our captain. Let us remember the Lord our keeper and sing in the victory that he has won 
for all of us.